deep down I knew this industry, this business, this form of entertainment will never go away. Will never go away. It will, it will, it can only grow. What it has become, I wouldn't have known at the time. But that this was just a fad, no way. That was, that was, that was, this, this just no way. I mean, once you experience playing games yourself and you know, you, you put yourself in other people's shoes and yeah, they're gonna like it. You just have to, you know, develop the, the right game for them. Not everybody will like everything, but this wasn't gonna go away. You are listening to the 21 Artist Show a podcast that inspires creatives to make meaningful content to pursue their passion. I'm talking with creators, artists and engineers about their careers, lessons they have learned and how to make an impact. I'm your host Alexander Richter. I'm a technical director and coach in visual effects, animation and games. For more content, go to 21artistshow.com. Enjoy the show. Hey, Thomas, thank you for being here. Well, Alexander, thanks for having me. So I think we should start with the first question to introduce you a little bit. Was that always something that you wanted, like from the beginning, that you wanted to be part of first thing of the games industry and maybe also on the side of founding a company? No, I, uh, you have to, so I'm, I'm six, from, from 64. So I was already 20 years old when I kind of, when I got the computer bug, maybe, maybe 19, 18, 19. 19 around 19 when I got the computer bug and nowadays kids and even after the generation after me uh, you know computers were already there and at when when I was 16 or 14 or 12 there were no computers around there were maybe I, I hadn't even heard of Nintendo at at the time so it was just from a technical perspective it was fascinating to explore all this stuff and no, I, I, I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be a, a, a military jet pilot. Uh, that was my thing from growing up. And it kind of went the other way. What was your motivation behind founding Bluebyte? What was the, the thing that first thing changed your, your path from the, from the military to the games industry and also um, make you decide to create your own company, which is of course much, much bigger involvement in the whole thing than just being hired for a as a developer, for example. Well, the decision not to switch to, you know, away from military aviation, that was made for me because there were like a thousand applicants for 10 pilot seats at, at, at that time. I mean, Germany doesn't have a very large Air Force to begin with, and there were some medical issues. I wasn't wearing glasses at the time, but I had like allergies and things, so I was out of there. After, after three days of, of testing, I was out of there, and so it had to be something else. There goes your Top Gun career, basically. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I did meet a lot of uh, pilots that were training then, Luftwaffe pilots training uh, in Arizona. They have a base there in uh, Goodyear. They, the Lufthansa and the Luftwaffe share a training center. In, uh, in Arizona, so I met some of the, the people that, and the place where they probably might have sent me if I had been successful, where they teach them back in the day on phantoms and starfighters and what, what have you not. I didn't want to continue my electrical engineering, basically, and uh, so the computer kind of thing was the closest related field that, that and, and it was kind of fascinating. Once, once you get drawn into it, keep in mind, there was no documentation whatsoever. You, you did get a little manual uh, and it would describe how to turn it on and turn it off. 
and maybe pro, pro program a few things in basic and stuff but if you really wanted to get into into the machine and what it could really do uh, you really had to uh, uh, be very uh, patient and very persistent and you know figuring all these things out and I just liked that and then you know the first pixel started moving on the screen and then the pixel became a, a, a starship and then I needed something to uh, you know to put underneath the starship and it was kind of fascinating to put all that together in the end of course that wasn't going to you know that that was fine and great and I have to thank my parents for letting me probably I don't know sit up there and under the attic in uh, in their house for the first six months or so just just trying things out ultimately it did became a game it did become a game and uh, I send it out to Rainbow Arts a very popular game developer and publisher at the time they accepted it uh, I worked there for two and a half years three years and the reason why I left and and Lothar Schmidt Another programmer at uh, Rainbow Arts left with me, and we we started uh, um, Blue Byte. Was I mean the industry was very immature at the time. So now we're now we're in 1987, 1988, very Im immature, and we really didn't see a path forward being employed. You know, me being a little bit older than the rest of the gang, not everybody, but you know, al already being. Uh, uh, 20 in 84 so it kind of I don't know lent itself to setting up our own business and 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 that's what we did so Lothar and I left Blue, uh, Blue Byte <laughs> left Rainbow Arts uh, August 1st or we, we we started our, our we started Blue Byte August 1st 1988 pretty much just with a couple of ideas two two computers a couple of ideas no office space so we were working from home Yes, kids, uh, we did that back in the day as well. So, um, and, you know, being on the phone all, all, all the time, and that's, that's how it started. Yeah, it's kind of the, the this garage story, basically, a little bit. Nor yeah. In this case, I think it was the addict story, kind of. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit, like, of an insight? What was the industry, because it was in Germany, what was the industry at that time in Germany? What games were there? What companies were there actually existing at that time yeah there was so, so there was rainbow arts that's the uh, that's where i uh, spent a couple of years with in in Gütersloh. and there was magic bites uh that was also they were also in Gütersloh, and uh, they were actually the the uh, managing directors or ceos of both companies they actually had worked together in the past and split up before i even joined this this uh, 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 the industry, and they were both. I think they were both supported and sponsored by Bertelsmann, uh, which is a huge uh, publishing concern in uh, Germany. So uh, um, they had a publishing the agreement in, in in place, and they were one of the first ones out with games. Really, there may have been two or three others in all of Germany at that time. It just wasn't. It just wasn't a thing. And, and I have to tell you that Germany is very conservative or was very conservative in those days. And, you know, you would, you would uh, get a trade or you would uh, get a degree in mechanical engineering or electrical engineering and, and computer games just, just wasn't a thing. And some of my friends were like, what are you doing? This, this is nuts. You're, you know, this is, this is not going to work. This is not going to happen. 
computer games, are you serious? And uh, so it was tough to kind of establish that. Uh, you really had to go your own, own way. And as far as uh, financing is, I mean, there was no financing. There was no, no VC capital. There was nothing. It was, you had to bootstrap or nothing, or you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go anywhere. The banks wouldn't give you money. They might give you a little bit of overdraft and, 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 and that's about it. So you had to bootstrap yourself. And that's why the industry in Germany was lagging behind, still kind of lagging behind the rest of the world, particularly in particular the United States and France with Ubisoft. The business side of uh, uh, the financial side and the financial potential, the money potential, only came into play in the late 90s during the dot-com boom. It's quite interesting to see nowadays. Uh, Germany is one of the biggest game market, at least, uh, on that side, even if it's not the biggest producer of games. Uh, in terms of consumption, uh, it is one of the biggest, actually. And uh, I, can, I can see, for example, that big companies in the US um, are always kind of seeing Germany kind of as, as one of the markets they pivot to because they know how much buying potential nowadays is. Definitely in the last, let's say, 20 years, 15 years for And it's sure. always been that way, uh, Alexander. So, I mean, uh, when I said, you know, it's a small, it was, it was really rural and, 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 you know, small. That was on the, on the business side, on the development side. It was always the biggest market in Europe. Mm. and second or third biggest world market uh, in the world, number one, the United States, and then with Japan and Germany, depending on whether you were, you know, going into consoles and, and uh, you know, or PC games, that kind of varied. Yeah. But Germany was always at, at least the second biggest market. And that gave us, of course, a great boost. We, there was very little supply and a lot of demand. And we didn't have to do, go through, you know, localization and translation. Most of the games at the time that were developed in Germany came out in German first, maybe only. And then as an afterthought, uh, they would be uh, localized and translated into English, French and that. Yeah, this is kind of, uh, kind of an interesting situation because on one side you have a country and to some degree a culture that, uh, that, that kind of digests and wants more games. But on the other side, you have a culture that is not really in this creative mixture of technician and creative thing. They value much more the more fundamental engineering, basically. It's a, such a strange situation. So it was kind of interesting to see you kind of opening up to, to the potential of this market. Was that something that you were thinking business-wise or was that more that you were thinking I want to create an opportunity for myself in the best way because there is not much there is to found my own company and you are not that much into oh yeah German is such a potential and that's why I'm opening it up. I'm what 24, 23, 24 you're young you're invincible you're bulletproof you don't have family <laughs> you don't have a mortgage to pay you can do whatever you want right so that, but that aside deep down I knew this industry this business this form of entertainment will never go away will never go away it will, it will it can only grow what it has become i wouldn't have known at the time but that this was just a fad no way that was that was there was just there's just no way i mean once you experience playing games yourself and you know you, you put yourself in other people's shoes and yeah they're gonna like it you just have to you know develop the the right game for them not everybody will like everything but 
this wasn't going to go away. And I know this, this sounds kind of uh, corny, but uh, the day I was to start my, my job in Gütersloh at Rainbow Arts, I stepped out of uh, uh, my parents' house, getting into the car, and on the horizon, there was a rainbow. No kidding. So, uh, rainbow on the day I started at Rainbow Arts. This is, this is a true story. And uh, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe this has got to work out. <laughs> this is fate. And then the business side came came later. Uh, like I said, we um, this was you know a very immature business uh, or industry, and you know a lot of young people coming together, trying to make things work, and uh, there was a lot of chaos and a lot of distraction. So we figured that we don't need all that. You know, let, let's do it for, for build, A, build the games that we want to build. When you work for a developer, you basically have to make the games that they want to make. If you are the developer, uh, or if you are the developer slash publisher, you can make the games that you want to make. And that's, that's important for everybody, I guess, in this industry to a certain extent. Some, for, for some it's more, for some it's less. But that was our motivation. And then money, of course, sure, but we had to put money in at first. Uh, I mean, Lota's parents, my parents, they financed us for the first six months and, you know, living expenses, rent, all that stuff. We probably couldn't do it today. Well, well maybe we could because we have all these, these fancy tools now that we had to develop everything from scratch. There was nothing there. We had to develop our own uh, visual tools and sprite routines and, you know, level editors and all that stuff. So there was a lot of leading up to before you could actually make, make the game. And then it was never really, uh, uh, speaking for myself, but I think I, I can say for Lota as, as, as well, it was never really about the big money. That, that, that never really, I mean, we wanted to pay ourselves. We, we had to pay our employees. I think in year, year two or so, we started hiring people, first freelance, then em employed in an office. And then we had to pay for the office space and all that stuff. But it wasn't about, I don't know, and, and, and maybe that was a little naive or something, but it was never really about the big money. It wasn't. That kind of led towards probably me selling or having to sell Blue Byte because that business side was underrepresented. You know, that cutthroat, okay, we need to do this, we need to do that. And even if we don't like it, even if you don't like it, uh, that kind of was missing. Uh, that was great as a working environment and you know, but a company like Ubisoft is run differently than a company, small company of Blue Byte, as an example. And I don't know how they run their business, but I know they're very successful and they're doing something right. So uh, at, at some point it just changes from you become a manager. There's, there's no creativity there anymore. It is, it is just, uh, you know, uh, you talk uh, in the morning, you talk to your CFO. In the, in the evening uh, to your shareholders. And, and it's just, yeah, it has nothing to do with game development anymore. And at that point in time, I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm done. It kind of reminds me on, on the um, episode we did with Carl Rosendale, who was the founder of PDI. And for him was like a lot of that he cared about was company culture. That's also the episode about. And the moment that DreamWorks bought PDI, basically the company culture changes. The way that he works changes, the challenges of, of his own life cha changes and work. And of course, the way that people kind of 
connect with each other. For example, one of the things was uh, DreamWorks was a bigger company and they kind of were um, less transparent also in terms of internally. You know, they didn't want everyone to know every number or something like that, which uh, was something that Carl cared very much about. He wanted everyone to be aware, hey, we, uh, I don't know, don't invest in a bigger render farm because we are investing in this or because we didn't have so much success with the last project or something, you know. So I think there's a, a lot of similarities I hear between that. But let's go go back and and see uh, where we originally started. So when you decided to to do that and kind of like a little bit maybe naive in terms of that, but your main focus was on making more games and to some degree create like an employment for yourself compared to making a business. It was kind of like secondary sounds like it was more like, oh, I, I have enough money that I can continue doing that. And at the same time, I can make games that I enjoy. So there were actually three of us in the beginning and one got cold feet. So that's the first thing you, you know, you talk big and for people that are in their situation today, you know, maybe they want to start, they're working somewhere, they, they want to start a new business with, with their buddies. Five may say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be with you. I'm, I'm leaving. We're doing this. But you may only end up with two or three in the end. And there were no hard feelings. We actually worked with this person uh, later on, a few years later, and he uh, worked on, a, on another tennis game for us. So there was no, you know, it was there were no hard feelings, but he wasn't ready for self-employment. And I, me being exposed to my father's business, you know, uh, I kind of knew what was coming. And, and you know, so yeah, we had to do the accounting and, and all these, these kind of things. But the first thing is, okay, what are we going to do? Uh, Lothar wanted to do the tennis game. That, that was his thing. That was the first idea that, that he wanted to explore. I think that idea probably started to uh, form at Rainbow Arts. I don't know. Uh, he wanted to do the tennis game. And um, I wanted to do uh, a, a, a strategy game. We had two ideas. So what we did is we kind of started working the... Uh, without thinking about business or anything. I mean, in, in those days, you really have to focus 100%. You cannot be disturbed by, you know, uh, I don't know, the bank calling somebody, you know, whatever. It's, it, it's all about, like I said, we had to start from scratch. We had some, some, some basic routines and tools, but we needed to gear up for what was to come. And after about six months or so, I noticed that we weren't really making all that much progress. So I said, Lothar, we need to have an office. We need to be in one place. We cannot be, you cannot be in Dusseldorf and I'm in Mülheim. It's, it's just not working. We need to be in one place. So we got a cheap office uh, and still no money inside, not even a product inside. We were still probably nine months away from re releasing, from, from finding a publisher. So all that time we, were, we had to kind of basically live off savings and I had programmed this, 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 this tool to make sprites and backgrounds and we kind of tried to sell that and we sold a few hundred uh, and, uh, you know, just, just to bring some, some money in. All of a sudden that the dynamic changed and uh, we were basically sitting back to back with our computers. And uh, if Lothar needed something, I could just take a floppy disk, copy the, 
the file on the disk, turn around and hand him, or you know, like like this. Okay, this is it. Or if if I needed something from from Loader, the same way, basically, um, you know, Microsoft Network version one point zero point one <laughs> with with floppy disk. This is the cloud, you know. By the way, I, I we probably need to establish the floppy disk that I will uh, introduce here as an image. <laughs> because I'm not sure if everyone's aware what a floppy disk anymore is. Yeah. It's basically for for the for the younger generation, it's the, it's the safe button nowadays. Yeah. Basically, the moment you 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 move together into an office, the whole way of working and productivity basically skyrockets. And that's why I'm still today. I'm I'm still a big proponent of of working in an office at least a few days during the week. It doesn't have to be all the time. There 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 are parts in your you know. In your workflow where you don't need distraction but that create creative spark you know uh, that the exchange of information and having a second or third or fourth or fifth person looking at your work and critiquing it i need to be in the same room with that person that's when i can be uh, most productive and and i've noticed that in the past with other people as, as, as well and then we can go you know back into our offices workspaces whatever and do our thing but complete you know remote work in a creative job that's tough and 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 I've I've worked with freelancers remotely all over the world and it just takes so long to to explain an idea and and so at any rate so that's it it changed it improved and and now we were getting closer to having a demo disk and uh uh so we send out demo disks. I can't tell you what must have been, I don't know, 89, somewhere in 89, probably a year after we, we started out. And we didn't have a name at the time. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't Blue Byte at the time. It was just Herzler and Schmidt GBR, which is like a, an, LL, an LLC. And we didn't really think we needed a name at the time, and, and we didn't. So we had, like I said, we were completely focused on developing games. Uh, we didn't have marketing brochures. We uh, we may have had business cards, but that's about it. And maybe letterhead. Which is kind of, to some degree, the opposite of nowadays. That that's a little bit why I like to talk about uh, like the older days and to to go back to some some of this success stories of of the past. Is nowadays. People sit longer on on the title of their company, of their product, um, how to market. You know, they they create amazing trailers that, of course, are fake as uh, as shit. You know, and they basically, and also for themselves, they basically overmarket themselves and focusing much more time on how to present themselves through Instagram, LinkedIn, and so on, compared to actually. Uh, working on the on the main thing and then afterwards finding the like okay now i have the skills or now i have a product or kind of close to be there let's figure the rest out of how i bring that to you know a cool logo a cool title a cool whatever so i feel like this is su such a opposite way of of nowadays that i sometimes uh, really like to hear that element of like you know i, I was focusing on that what i cared about and now I had to make it out of business, so I added this last element to the whole thing. I think the the companies that were successful in the end, I mean, we, we weren't the only startup at the time, there were others. But uh, we were, I, I guess, if, if Magic Bytes and Rainbow Arts were first generation, then we were second generation. And there were companies at the time that were actually, that were, were run by businessmen. Uh, they had no clue about uh, computer games and, uh, you know, 
so that was going on as well and there were some shady characters as well that that started to uh, you know just break into the market for for a quick buck they they, they kind of knew there was something there and then you know they would hire help to you know develop the games but it was all about business for them and and so there was a little bit of that as well but for the most part i think the the, the creative teams the ones that were successful long term they all started like us with you know focused on the game and as we grew that changed of course you know then you need to have a brochure you need to have a portfolio and all these things so we send out these discs probably about 10 uh, publishers nobody in germany i think we there was nobody yeah i wanted to ask is, is there a, like in germany besides no. the the company no, no, we certainly weren't going to send one to rainbow hearts we didn't leave on on hostile or, or, or bad uh, um, in, in bad conditions but there wasn't really you know anything to, to to say you know these things usually after after a few years then you can talk to each other again but that was still too fresh so we sent um Probably, yeah, we sent uh, definitely Ubisoft, uh, Infogram, three or four in the UK. I'm trying to think of names now, but all the all the big ones, Ocean uh, and, and uh, Electronic Arts in the US. I think I don't know if SSI was still independent then. I think so. So around ten discs, and we didn't hear much from the UK. I think there was only one return, one call or fax or something. You have to explain what a fax machine is. <laughs> <laughs> Please watch the following YouTube video for the fax machine. Yeah, yeah, this we, is we like put a... a link in there. <laughs> the US, they, they did respond. Uh, they sent everything back in a nice envelope and with, a, with an NDA, uh, non-disclosure agreement, that they wouldn't be able to look at it uh, or even give an opinion until we signed the non-disclosure agreement. Wow. Which kind of tells you that they were years ahead as far as the, the commercialization of the, the medium was concerned. They already they had lawyers in place. They had banks in place. They had venture capital in place. They were going public. They, it was a, a much more mature industry at the time. So we were like, what? You want me to sign? No. So we didn't. And Ubisoft came back. Maybe Infogram came back. But Ubisoft was... They were really interested, especially in the tennis game. So that was it, and uh, we uh, they invited us to uh, Brittany. They had a, they had a, they had facilities. They had offices in in Paris, I think at the time, but their headquarters were still in uh, Brittany. They had a big castle. They had rented out a castle for crying out loud. Louis Quinze, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, and the programmers were living there and crazy times. And uh, so we signed two games, I think, with them for worldwide publishing, for worldwide rights. So we were the developer, they were the publisher. And that was our start. And then the first checks came in, the first money came in. How long after you basically found it until you got yeah, to, to that? It was, I think it was still in 89. It was still in 89. I mean, you know, it didn't take two or three years to develop a game then. Mm-hmm. The important part of the tennis game was was the control, the, how to control the player, and that was why it was so so successful. So the courts, I don't know, we had maybe three or four different courts. More wouldn't fit onto the disc anyways. And the rest of it is just fine tuning, fine tuning, playing, playing, playing. Lothar was a tennis player, so he knew what he was doing. It didn't take that long to develop. 
the game. It's not like a game with, with like 20 levels, you know, and, and things like that, and everything is different. This must have been still in 89 and came out as great chords in Germany. Outside of Germany, it was um, Pro Tennis Tour. I guess it sounded better. I think at that time we had finally found our name. We, we finally d decided to call ourselves Blue Byte because the, the one in between, the Herzl and Schmidt GBR and, and Blue Byte, that was kind of, it sounded good in French and in German, but in English it was kind of rude. So <laughs> we, had to, we had to drop that name and I'm not sure that I can uh, say this here on, on the YouTube. Where did the name came from exactly? It was just a word put together that sounded kind of futuristic and, and it was just a, uh, an artificial word, which when you pronounce it in English, especially in American English, yeah, it sounds kind of rude. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you ever thought about publishing it yourself. Uh, I think it would be probably such an endeavor because there was no downloads. You had to have physical copies. It was floppy disks probably still the time. That was exactly the the plan pretty much from the beginning. Uh, I mentioned this little graphic tool that I had developed and, and we published that. We manufactured it. We had kept contacts with the Sonopress, uh, which is a Bertelsmann affiliate. They were the largest floppy disk CD-ROM duplicator in, in Europe for, the, for a while. And so we actually did some some publishing, uh, and, it, and 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 we knew from from the deals that Rainbow Arts had made that the only way to really be successful at the time was to be your own publisher, to develop and publish, and maybe pick up other people's games, but to have basically the entire path, the vertical, you know, from the product to the consumer. Uh, if you had a direct access there, that's when you could be successful. Because what, what publishers usually do is they cherry pick, right? They, they, you have a number of products in your, in your portfolio as a developer, but they only want one. But they know they're not going to get that one unless they take the other two as well. So they do that, and then they get completely neglected, the other two. So in the end, for the developer, that's bad because you hope, you know, you want, you believe in all three, and you would have, you know, spread the marketing budget evenly about, uh, across three titles, while the publisher only focuses on this one title and the other one kind of rots away in the warehouse. And that happened a lot. That happened a lot. So we, we knew we wanted uh, to publish. And with the next iteration, with the next set of games, we started doing that. So we said, okay, you can have worldwide rights, but we were having Germany. And uh, which was, as you said, or as we said earlier, that was one of the biggest markets, the biggest market, PC market for, for, for those kind of games in Europe. And uh, so we started working with a distributor near Düsseldorf called Rushware. And uh, so, yeah, we, we, we manufactured, we sold to Rushware exclusively much later, we had many distributors, not just one. Uh, so we slowly worked our way into uh, um, a publisher's position. And uh, as I said, the, the reasoning is not just because, hey, this is fun to do, because most of the time it is not. <laughs> no, I don't, especially on the like you know physical medium. Yeah, you yeah. Know. you know, you have returns. You have, yeah, you have to decide how many boxes and manuals to produce. Do you overproduce? Do you underproduce? But at least you have control and you have control of the media. 
And that's, that's also something. The publisher always tries to keep the developer, at least in those days, I don't know, that, that's probably still the case today. The publisher keeps the developer away from the media. So, uh, you know, and then you start negotiating, how big is your logo, or our logo in that case, Blue Byte's logo, compared to Ubisoft? Is it in the back? Is it in the front? Are they side by side? And, uh, yeah, that's, that, you have to be a publisher to, to, to control all these, these things. And then with the next flow, we excluded England, because that was at that time, I think Blota had left the company. Uh, we had already, we had Settlers. Settlers 1 was out, very successful. Gave us a little cash to uh, develop new, new titles and, and set our sites overseas. And I started an office in the UK. Uh, basically just sales, marketing, PR. Because you don't talk, you, you don't, you can't talk to the British press from Germany. It's, 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 just, it's just not done. You, you have to build, you have to know people, you have to build contacts, you have to build relationships. And so, uh, um, uh, and, 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 and that was always the goal, to be in as much control of our own product portfolio and how we present it and how we sell it as possible. Basically, when you started, you noticed that you were not able to do the world market, but you wanted at least the German market. And then throughout the years, you, you started to kind of like take, take back more and more of that part. And I think that is smart because I think one of the things that I see uh, with a lot of companies or areas in general, like from education to software to whatever, um, a lot of people only focus on creating something. You know, I create the master classes, I create the software, I create the, uh, the animation product or something, and they kind of lose the um, opportunity and of course the, the bigger piece of the pie from that by also distributing as far, far, far as possible, of course, you know, like you are not comparable to a Disney distribution if you make a movie or something like that. But I, what I like is this looking ahead and just being a software development company and letting publishing completely off your hands and just be like, okay, we do the product, someone else distributes and we get a cut, basically. And I think I think that the smart part was actually to to already slowly taking that also as part of your business model. That sounds great on, on, on paper, you know, really. I mean, it's... It and and if if we hadn't had so many bad experiences with that, you know, I would have been happy just to be a developer. I mean, um, it's software, you know, with Wolfenstein and Doom and all that. They were never a publisher. They were always a developer, but they were so powerful. They had built a reputation that the publishers wouldn't mess with them. So, uh, you, you know, once you're in that position, then, you know, you don't want to be a publisher. You, you Maybe you want to focus on... Uh, uh, being being a developer only, uh, and and uh, but with with you know the the chain from from the developer to you know finished product to a distributor to a retailer to the consumer that that's a long way, and 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 like I said, there's this so many things that that, that can go sideways in that path, especially after it you, you give the disc to somebody else. You know, special interests come in. This company may not may not want to promote this product in any way. So, I, I felt, and I still think that was necessary to do nowadays. You know, with up with with Steam, uh, something like like Steam marketplaces like uh, Steam, 
or just you know being being you're putting up a website and a, and a download button no you don't you don't need that you still need to have you still should have contact direct contact with the media uh, nothing can replace that and uh, because that's what the media, at least back, you know, a, a, a serious journalist, a serious publishing house will want to talk to the developer, not some somebody who is, you know, who has a degree in marketing or, or, or public relations. They want to know the nitty gritty details. Uh, you know, how did you do this? How did you do that? What kind of problems did you run into? Like when they do these, uh, you know, uh, post-op uh, re re reviews in the gaming magazines, that's the kind of stuff that the gamer wants to see not some marketing lingo about blah, blah, blah. It allows us to have 16 times the detail. I think for, you know, anybody who's, even today that, that have either in the games business or any other creative fields, you should put, you should put some time away for, to talk to the media directly, unfiltered. Uh, it's the best thing. It's, 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 it's the cheapest advertising that you can have. For me personally, everything actually started with, I don't know if you can see it. I don't know if oh. you uh, can see it. It's, I think it's from a magazine also that had that copy that I have now. Die Siedler, that was the game that actually brought uh, me to Blue Byte, brought me to you basically. It is the game, one of the first game I've ever played besides like Transport Tycoon. And for me, it was, uh, I remember uh, the first sequence with the night. Uh, coming into this town, basically, and and of course, then the, the other parts, especially DC Let's Fly, which is my favorite from all of them. And for me, that would be the interesting part is to see how it came to be that especially the first and then the second part was created. How how did you came to that situation that Blue Byte was making Zeta? To say this right right from the get go, uh, the settlers, the Zeta. That was not an in-house project. It was it was a submission. It was submitted to us on a disc by a gentleman called uh, Volker Wertig. And uh, the reason why he sent it to us was because at that point we had maybe 91, 92, 91. We had built ourselves a reputation as being a developer and starting to be a publisher. So at that time we already had we the German market was excluded. So we could maximize not just revenue and profits for us, but for the developer as well. So at that point in time, we had Great Courts, possibly Great Courts 2, which was published under Jimmy Connors' Pro Tennis Tour outside of Germany. Ubisoft had secured the, uh, the name Jimmy Connors and that did really well. Battle Isle, a number of data disks and additional disks, history line. So we had a number of really good titles out there and we, we did get some really good uh, uh, submissions as, as, as well. But Focus certainly stood out. Uh, it was very early. It was basically what you would call today a vertical slice. So uh, you could walk around. There, there was a, you know, some, some background and it was a simulated 3D. Uh, and you could there was there were little people walking around and and you know you could you could maybe build two or three houses at the time but it certainly stood out among all the other games or demos that that had been sent sent to us so we ended up signing a contract with him 
and uh, we supported Volker with sound and graphics. So we had, uh, I think we, if we didn't have an in-house musician, uh, if, if he wasn't in-house at the time, which I don't think he was, but we had a freelance musician and he would write the soundtracks and sound effects and things of that nature. And we had just hired a really good uh, uh, graphic artist who had been working with us freelance before, uh, Torsten Knob. And uh, um, they, so we were, we were doing the graphics, we were sending discs back and forth. I don't think we had a electronic mailbox at the time. Maybe we did, maybe we didn't, but, and he would come up from Southern Germany to, 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 to where we were uh, once in a while. That's how this got, got started, because Volker was a programmer. He was, you know, he was, uh, uh, I wouldn't call it coder. I, that word is so, ugh, I, I hate the word coder. He was a programmer, he was a software engineer. Uh, he actually, uh, uh, after Settlers, he went back to college and, and finished his degree. So uh, at any rate, um, we kind of supported him in his efforts and, you know, uh, there may have been a little bit of input from, from me here and there, but it was mostly uh, uh, Volker's work and then the rest of the, the team putting it all, all together. And once we had kind of, once everybody saw the, the initial, the vertical slides, I think we all kind of had the same, we all saw the same potential. There was actually a game at the time that kind of looked like it, called Populous. Funny enough, I actually have a CD of Populous also. Visually similar, gameplay different, very different. But this kind of God game, so you know, you can call it- a I mean, it's a black and white, basically, Populous, which yeah. later kind of became black and white. We almost didn't make it. We almost, the settlers almost wouldn't have been released because we were slowly running out of money. The banks were, uh, our bank cut our credit line. Well, from one day to another, they, they, they cut the credit line because some business in Germany, computer uh, IT business had screwed up big time, went bankrupt, belly up, uh, millions and billions of dollars, euros, or not the Deutschmarks at the time, uh, of unpaid bills and stuff. And so they decided that every business that had anything to do with computers, they didn't want them. Untrustworthy, basically, yeah. from one day to another. They cut us off. Uh, and at that time, Lothar was, that, that was the time just before Settlers, when he left, we came to an agreement that I would buy him out. And uh, 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 fortunately, I found another bank in uh, uh, my hometown. And, and they actually not just gave us the credit line back, but they extended it considerably so that we were actually able to finish the game. And uh, yeah, when, uh, when the first, when the sales numbers came in, the first sales numbers came in, I was actually in hospital. Because I had a, I wouldn't call it, it wasn't a nervous breakdown, but I had collapsed. I, I just, they, I was done. I, it was just too much. So, uh, but I remember uh, the uh, accounting person coming, coming into the hospital to visit me and running down the numbers, you know, pre-orders and da 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 da, da. So well, I was out of there, out of that bed in like a day or two and yeah, back, back in the fray. But let, let everybody know, I mean, I just want to let everybody know that those were, we're, we're looking at those times as fun in the good old days, you know, but uh, it was tough. And, and, and uh, I'm pretty sure I wasn't the only one who, you know, uh, burst and or not burst uh, burned out you know uh, ran out of juice 
uh, so it, it, it was very, very tough. How was the situation at that specific time and just when, when you had to burn out? Like how many people were working in, in Blue Bike and what was the profits basically more or less around? Probably still less than a million Deutschmarks at the time, re annual revenue. Uh, I would say we had about eight or nine employees, plus Loda and I. So it wasn't that big. Uh, we again, we had to pay them on a regular basis. We had to pay rent. We had to pay insurance. We had a profit sharing play, uh, agreement in in place or, or a mechanism in in place that uh, for every game that uh, somebody would work on, or for every game there was a certain percentage put into a jackpot. We call it the jackpot. And then depending on how long somebody had been with the company and whether they were involved in the project or not, there was a formula to pay out, you know, so uh, something to, to motivate that, you know, I'm not just working for my salary. Kind of like a stake a little bit from yeah. like this, a success stake a little bit, yeah. like the more yeah. success the yeah. company. It just, the only, the only downside was you had to wait until the product actually sold. Yeah, okay. But <laughs> that worked actually rather well for a while. I mean, it motivates you to finish. It motivates you to, to get something out of the door in a way. Because the argument was always, well, the external developer, the guy who brought us, I don't want to use Volker's name too often here because, you know, that's, that's just the situation. But, but let's just say, you know, well, Volker gets a percentage. Why don't I get a percentage? And, you know, I'm thinking, you're right. You should get a percentage too. But Volker is the guy who came up with the idea. So obviously he gets a bigger piece of the pie. But everybody else should get something as well. So we established this and it actually worked pretty well. And again, we were not talking about three or four year development cycles. You could see an income. And even as, as, as somebody joined the company, after six months or so, they would participate in the jackpot, if, even if, if, if they hadn't launched a game yet, at a smaller rate, but still something a little extra, you know, that, uh, and like I said, that, that seemed to work pr pretty well until it became as something that was expected. And uh, at that point in time, the whole thing falls apart, but that's another story. I actually think, I think that's an amazing idea. I mean, the balance is always important, but I think this the problem nowadays is uh, to some degree, uh, if you are employed, is this kind of like, it doesn't matter what kind of great ideas and investment and you know if you go at like 50% at work or 100% at work, it doesn't really matter as long as you kind of do your job um, it's fine enough, you know, and especially the more creative uh, and creative solutions, it's kind of, you can still be on the level where you like invest like 50% of your power and, and, and energy and you are okay. And I think this is a, a great incentive of um, motivating everyone's like, hey, there is something that we give you. It's, nowadays, it's more like shares or something, especially something like Apple and Google are famous for that. But I think it's it's a great way to also show you monetary. And another way I always liked is if you find a way that that optimizes a workflow, you get a little bit of the like money saving, for example. We had a situation where they wanted to buy a render farm and some employer found computer that were cheaper, but on the same level, basically. And he got like, I don't know, 5,000 uh, euros just kind of as a as a thank you because he saved like 20,000 or whatever. And I think that is a really, really great incentive. So how was it like on, on the Settler one specifically, was Volker the one who basically, you were mostly publisher for this specific game where he was doing all the creative decisions, all the content decisions, and you were just supplying him with 
advice, with graphics, with audio. Torsten, I guess, in particular, the uh, the the artist, the the 2D artist. I mean, there was a lot of back and forth uh, where you know, I mean, the whole visual. Fucker's not a not a not an artist. It was a cooperative effect. Like Torsten and Volker would talk about formats. Yeah, uh, how 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 big can I make the settler? And then within that, Torsten had complete autonomy. We had complete autonomy. Uh, it didn't matter. It had to. It, it just had. To, it didn't matter to Volker. It just had to look good. So. Uh, and, and and that's how it worked, and that was the same with 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 sound and music. You know how much how much uh, how many kilobytes can you can you give us for sound sound effects and music kilobytes, kids? Um, and uh, you know I think it had to fit on. I think it fit on two discs. I don't know. You you probably know better. You have uh, you have a disc right there, but uh, it had to fit all into this. And 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 once the technical specs were agreed on, everybody worked independently. And then, of course, a lot of discussions. Well, we can do this, and we can do that. And no, we don't have time for this anymore. Any anymore? I think one of my ideas, or that that doesn't matter if it was my idea, was warehouses. We need warehouses because things were always piling up, or things were always piling up at the at the junctions. And so warehouses didn't come in until two or three. Yeah, I actually play played it. At, I just was in the second mission where where you have to. But but the warehouses really alleviated some of the issues that we had with you know just traffic, traffic piling up and blocking everything and then you had it's kind of if you like that sort of thing it's kind of fun to to untangle it all and get it running again but most people just expect when that rock the stone the the granite the the wood needs to be delivered to the construction site that it kind of happens within a certain time frame and that you have don't have to you know do much too much micromanagement as far as the micromanagement is concerned in the entire series i guess that it's kind of like an up and down curve you know, you try to avoid it, but then it would be nice if I could have a setting for this and a setting for that. And so, and then in the next revision, you first, you drastically reduce that. And then by the end of the development, it kind of creeps up again. Nobody on the team was really a huge fan of micromanaging all these little things. We always tried to, you know, let the computer take care of things. But then again, very limited hardware at the time. You couldn't really run a very sophisticated AI or anything like that, especially when the computer decided to do, you know, pathfinding, uh, finding the, the correct way from one building to another. You only have so many CPU cycles to do that in every frame that you had. And so the compromises had to be made. Uh, but in the end, I mean, with, with Settlers 1, I think we were all pretty happy with what we had. We didn't know that we would have Settlers 2 at the time. We didn't know that maybe Settlers 2 and 3 and 4 would be visually better looking, but what, you know, what we had right then and there, we were pretty happy with it. It's an amazing game. We had sent out some samples to the, to the press and positive with, with positive feedback. That's another reason why you do want to be in touch with the, with the press directly, with the journalists, and not through an intermediary. Because uh, as you get to know them, they will tell you, look, uh, this looks good. I don't think this is going to fly. And, uh, you know, so very useful input. And you get them on your site early in the game, early in, you know, the publishing, the, the marketing and all that. We were very happy with what we had. And I think we, we exceeded 100,000 like in, in a week or two on, uh, say, in uh, sales. It was just running 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 it was at uh, at that time we would maybe 
manufacture 20, 30,000 if we were really convinced about the product on initial days. And I think with Settlers, it was 80 or 90,000. It was like one day we ordered, we, we called Sonopress and said, okay, we need 50,000. And the next day we would call, we need another 20,000. So by the time they actually started manufacturing it, it I think it was like 80, 90,000 boxes manuals and floppy disks <laughs> was it only in, in the german market at that time for settler one that was only for the german market yes and we had a clause i don't in think the, there's a, an english version even of that game yes but but we had a clause in the in the contract i think that we had a little bit of time to explore because there's no crossover it's, it's, it's especially with the french and i don't mean that you know in, I, I, I don't say that in a mean way it's just the french are very protective of their language and if you wanted to, and even now, I think if you want to sell a product in France, you better have French instructions and French language yes. for full localizations. And I must say, uh, I have to give them respect for that. Uh, and, you know, they want to preserve their, their language. And so the French don't, don't read German, don't speak German. So there was no, no rush to have an English or French version ready immediately. The same with, with, with the English version. Uh, now, if you had an English version, if you, if you, so in that way, we were a little bit, we were kind of um, in an advantageous position that pirates, you could pirate the game, but who would want to play a game in German in England? Yeah, outside of Germany. It's like, uh, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know anything. It's like Japanese. So we had a little bit of time. And then when the English version came out, that's when the piracy really started and it went everywhere because everybody reads English, everybody understands what's going on. But yeah, so no, we had an English and a French version for sure. And, and maybe at later times, even, even other languages. I don't know. I don't remember. The Settler uh, 1, uh, Die Siedler, I say the German name, Die Siedler 1, uh, I think from for me it has from all of, all of them uh, the most personality. You can feel there's a small group of people, in this case, two plus the sound music designer three who basically branded their own ideas and style and you know what they like what they thought plus of course the input from us but you can feel it the most on on the first part where you feel uh, a specific kind of you know um there is this like the the characters of the enemies which don't have really a story but i think they had some a little short introduction in the handbook or something but they had like different uh, personalities in terms of how they behave, like in terms of attacking and stuff. And that's something I liked. And and it was also in that time you you needed don't need it as much to understand a pro like um, to create like in your mind this world. You know where you where yeah. you just saw a picture and maybe saw a little bit of a different behavior in terms of play game and suddenly you are opened up like oh this person is arrogant or and and he is a whatever and I, I really liked that about the first seed light was kind of it opened up this it did a lot of things and inspired the, your mind to fill up the gaps uh, which probably did a lot of games in that time a lot of games did that. i really liked it about that game specifically yeah. out of necessity because we didn't have the memory or the bandwidth or the resolution to fill in the gaps and i think that's why there's such a active retro market because you know with the pixelated graphics you kind of have to fill in the details yourself uh yeah you can let your creative mind spin a little bit and and 
today looking at you know I remember some games very fondly and if I look at them today I'm like oh that's ugly <laughs> but then I look a little longer and I'm like oh okay now I I remember why I was so fascinated because you know if you fill out the pixels you have your own built-in anti-aliasing routine and you know whatever the mega zoom you know zoom in zoom in like they do in the tv shows and you know they more detail reveals itself out of a single pixel like C uh, csi <laughs> you know where they like oh i cannot see this plate please yeah. zoom five thousand yeah, yeah. times exactly <laughs> i keep mentioning torsten knob i think to to thomas hauser who, who actually was the lead on settlers 2 i think he also supported Falker with some code with some programming stuff so like i said if i if if i if I miss somebody here, then it's not intentional. Uh, you know, it is, it's been, yeah, 30 years ago. The big success of Settlers, I think, if, if it was one element, it was, well, the German press had a, had a name for it, it called Wuselfaktor. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to translate that. I mean, it's, it's kind of the lemming effect, basically, yeah. like, you know, where it's you... Like little people running around, and there were a lot of, Germany was the, the biggest market for simulations of any style it is yeah i mean farm simulations is still something we literally i probably have to make an, an old episode to explain the world why farm simulation is a thing actually and i don't want to name names but there was there was a company up in northern germany and they had these ec economic simulations uh and very successful but only successful in germany because it was so dry. It was so dry. <laughs> yeah. they, 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 they were very successful in Germany. I mean, I, 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 I saw the numbers, but outside of Germany, it's the English, the English, the French is like, no, that's not for us. But Settlers was different because we pulled the numbers out of the background and put them on the screen. So you could see that there were 10 boards placed on top of each other or five blocks of granite or you know whatever it was it was all visual while the 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 typical german economic simulation you have to go into a menu and then you look at a number and and then you uh, basically excel spreadsheets basically. an excel spreadsheet right a glorified excel spreadsheet and again <laughs> i don't want to diminish that um they did well uh, people love playing these games, but ours was all visual. Everything, there was nothing hidden, and you could see exactly how the wood made, or the, the construction material made its way from the forest and from the quarry to, you know, processing it into stones and, and, and lumber to the construction site. And you would actually see a little guy carrying a piece of lumber or whatever it was that they were, were carrying. That's also part of the Wusel factor. You have all these little guys running around and, you know, technically, uh, you know, as far as the, uh, we, we stressed the Atari and, and the Amiga, I wouldn't say to the limit, but it was still, you know, pretty amazing that we could all move all these little tiny people around and make them follow certain instructions and all that stuff. So uh, technologically, it wasn't, and I always try to stay away from technological marvel uh, because that's just too one-dimensional. One you have to have visuals, but you also have to have gameplay. If it's just visuals uh, and no gameplay, um, yeah, that, that lasts for like five minutes. And, and, and Settlers, as, as you can attest yourself, you know, you can play for hours. Welcome to our short mid-episode 
Coffee break. If you love the content and would like to have a successful career in the film or games industry yourself, check out my website 21artistshow.com. There you can find helpful articles, masterclasses and coaching opportunities that help dozens of my students to bring their profession to the next level. That's all. Check out 21artistshow.com and share the podcast with cool people you know. Let's continue with the episode. Of them, so I started actually with the Dziedler 1, but the game that I played the longest from all of them was actually Dziedler 2, which was I, I remember it like um, like one of my favorite novels of all time is Robinson Crusoe, mm -hmm. which to some degree is what the Dziedler 2 uh, is. It is about a whole kind of like shipwrecked, I think it is about, yeah, yeah. Um, and then they're on this on this weird islands which may or may not be inspired by uh, American islands or something like that. And they kind of, the Roman Empire uh, is kind of on this island and want to survive and find their path, find their path maybe back. And there's with a, a weird, and that's also a little bit on the question I want to ask, with these gates that they kind of teleport from one island to the other and experience and build and uh, fight their way through the like missions basically. And that was a very, like, one of my favorite games. And it's basically a continuation to some degree from Dizila Eins. It, it takes everything that was there and builds up on it, which should be every second part should be exactly that. It's a copy, but with all the, in, uh, like, enhancements that you can see and grow. Graphics are better. I mean, literally, the soundtrack, this, like, uh, I was sitting there. I I didn't notice that I played like for this for this episode. I was playing the game for two hours. I didn't even notice that I was playing for two hours. That is the the mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. like basically what you ta talked about. I didn't literally. I was not noticing it. And <laughs> the funny enough is, um, someone was sitting opposite to me, and he said, "Does this game also have?" other songs <laughs> because it has this at least in my version it only had this one song playing in a loop and it's just like one minute or something like that and if you click in the menu you can find other songs actually but i didn't even notice because this 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 loop for some degree like and the sound design for me this over uh, this extreme like birds and uh you know effects they're still stuck in my head about like mm -hmm. all the effects it's like watching uh like hearing a half-life sound it's this very specific sound that I remember, you know. So for me, uh, Dizila 2 is actually one of my like most memorable games. I love the the small story, which is not huge. And there is so much connection with this game for me. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's uh, for me, it's one of the best games of all time, to be honest. We almost ran out of money for Settlers 1. Uh... And uh, you know how stressful it was to uh, uh, bring it bring it to market. Settlers Two almost didn't happen because Falker didn't want to do it. He wanted to continue his uh, uh, degree, finish his degree, and that was fine with me. So naturally, I turned to my in-house developers and say, "Hey, uh, you know," uh, and that was already maybe I don't know quite a while after the, the launch of, of Settlers 1. So we didn't immediately start. It took a little while for us to register. Well, we, we really have a hit on our hands here. And then 
you know, we need to do a sequel. Nah, we're not interested. I want to do this. I want to do something else. And I had to, I had to beat them with a stick. I had to, I had to <laughs> really, I mean, I had to put my foot down and said, guys, we need to do this. This is probably how it looks like at the moment on Steam, uh, where no one wants to work on Half-Life 3 for, for a million of reasons. I may have said something like, well, think about the jackpot, what that's going to do to the, <laughs> to the jackpot, right? Huh, okay. And basically the same people that support it. No, I mean, the same people that supported Volker would be working on Settlers too. So Thomas Hauser, Torsten Knob, I, I think Heiko, Heiko made the music. You, you said you love the music so much. I'm pretty sure the he, music is... he loves to hear that. Heiko Huttmann. And, and it, it, it was a bit of a struggle. Uh, and then reluctantly, they, they started working on the game. And since they already knew the inside, you know, the code inside and out, it wasn't that difficult to expand on it. So what you described there earlier is basically we, we added to the core game with the Settlers 1, we had a core game. And now we added a meta game to it, connected the dots. Instead of just, you know, going from one level to another, there was a little bit of a story and why you, you know, you, you would branch out and do things. And, and so you add on top of the core game, you add something else. And that makes it so much more, so much bigger with very little effort, actually. And then you see this in a lot of games today. Where, you know, I mean, even, I don't know, I'm a huge fan of World of Tanks. I play it all the time. And the game is like five minutes of uh, shooting each other with, with tanks, which always ends in one side losing or winning. And they're very repetitive. But the meta game that's, that's built around the core game, you know, that where you manage your platoons and all that stuff, that's what keeps people playing. So we kind of did that. We had, we were better prepared for a story. Uh, I think. The story for Settlers One, I think we made that up it, it, close to the end. You know, we had a we had a we had a knight, uh, a big fat knight on a horse. <laughs> it, it, it all looked kind of medieval, so okay. Um, the the story wasn't that important. The story wasn't that important in general in those days. Uh, you, you should read some of the the background stories for on the back of the box. You know, for those who are out there that have these, that still have a collection of boxes, they are so stupid. I mean, that that's what happened. Also, a lot of times, the manuals were were actually the whole story and the whole background of yeah. the game. Like a lot of games, basically lived their story to the manuals, and inside the game, there was. Besides the art, was basically nothing actually. You are Zork. Uh, you have to save the world. Uh, you know that's basically that's the that's the default background story for for every game made in the eighties and nineties. I don't know. So no, we were better prepared, and and I think pl the, the players appreciated that, and they could see that Settlers Two had become a more mature product. It may have been you know the highlight. I thought that you know with three and four again. You know, we were trying to a at first remove the hassles, the micromanagement, the things that people didn't like. And we were even b before the day of the internet, we would read every card that was sent back to us. Every box had had a, had a registration card in it, and where you could fill out, you know, comments, what I like, what I don't like. We would read every card that would that would be sent back to us, and respond to that if it was technically feasible if it was you know something that really a lot of people either liked or hated it would be considered for for the next version uh, or maybe for a patch for an update 
which were difficult to do in the days because you had to basically have, again, a physical medium to patch your, your game. There was no internet. Three and, and four, I mean, I, I had really high hopes for four, but I wasn't, I wasn't around anymore when four came out. I thought just the, the graphics were just amazing uh, in Settlers 4. I haven't, to be honest, I haven't played any of these games, really played any of these games in a long time. Uh, I've, I've, I've downloaded some, I've downloaded Settlers 1 on some emulator, I have uh, an, an arcade here that, that, with, with a main emulator and blah blah blah, uh, but I haven't played any of these games at any length probably since, I don't know, for the last 20 years. I noticed that afterwards actually there's now the 25 years uh, history edition came out just now from Ubisoft. It's quite cheap also, like 15 bucks for seven games. Mm -hmm which is amazing and they uh, updated everything they took they seems to be that especially the first two they just um, make them compatible to the modern hardware and modern software system but they didn't like remaster or something like that which personally i appreciate <laughs> I, I actually saw so often that they remastered things and it like it didn't look anymore like that and it feels different because it's new graphics i mean Warcraft 3 Reforged is a, is a disaster. It looks weird and it doesn't work at all, basically. So I, I really appreciate that. So it sounds like it, um, so yeah, 25 years, that was the, I just saw that when I was kind of researching for this episode, which is amazing, I think. I mean, the Settlers was, it, it, it was a moneymaker for Bluebyte and it certainly was a moneymaker for Ubisoft. I don't know, five, six, seven, never, I never, I mean, I, I may have seen screen screenshots, I've seen some of the controversy around it where, where people got really mad because they went in, there was a Settlers Online, I think. Uh, there is, yes. Trying to catch, you know, the free-to-play free play wave. There were certainly some things in those products that we would have never done if we were, if, you know, if, if, if Blue Byte, and not just me, but the, the people at Blue Byte had been in charge, we would have never gone there. And I think with the last one, they were trying to kind of return to the roots and that didn't work out so well. So, I don't know. I played the Settler 5, uh, which was basically Age of Empires 3. Uh, it was like 3D and it had nothing to do with the Settler anymore. It was yeah. just real-time yeah. Yeah. Age of Empires kind of mixture with right. Stronghold kind e of exactly. situation. Exactly, Age of Empires. It was fine. It, I, I played it. It was fine. But it, it, it is like a different game that cannot stand to like Age of Empires 3, for example, or cannot stand like, you know, it, it's a good game. But it's not Settler, and it's also not as good as other op bigger kind of like. So it kind of became in this very niche, like n between nothingness in inside. So Settler 5 was okay, but forgettable, basically. But for me, the 2 was actually the one that kind of became... I always wanted to take the Settlers into space. <laughs> I can imagine that. I mean, Anno did that, actually. You know, you change the background, you change some of the game mechanics, you certainly, yes. you're exploring completely new worlds, right? But it's still a Settlers. It's, 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 but I never got around to do that. So, uh, um, but yeah, turning it into an entirely different game, I think you should call it, you should give it a different title then. Uh, marketing, huh? Yeah. Nowadays, marketing. Uh, you cannot change it, <laughs> even even if it's a different game. I mean, we had this with Cloverfield, uh, Cloverfield, Cloverfield Lane, and Cloverfield uh, something something. The first Cloverfield was the original one with handhold camera, and then the Cloverfield Lane was actually nothing to do. Last minute, they kind of put the changed the the, the screenwriting, and then just put a brand on it. And the third one has also nothing to do with it. They just kind of like 
changed a little bit so they can put the Cloverfield Lane thing. I think what uh, the the game that did it the best, even though I didn't play all of the newest one, is Anno. I think they they preserved the formula quite well until now. They changed it, of course, and they did all all that basically. They went into space. Actually, I think two thousand two hundred. That is the thing with Anno. The 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 numbers are extremely hard. So sixteen oh four. 1703, 1402. That's the hard part. So you just know like the first two numbers and then you have to guess which is the, the last two basically. But but I think they did it well throughout the years basically. And funny enough, Blue Byte actually does the last uh, iteration from Anno actually. And, and Anno was our biggest competitor uh, at the time. So definitely. Uh, I, th- I think we, we kind of still had a little bit of a lead, but... They had a very strong publisher, Bomico, behind it. Sunflowers, wasn't it? Yeah, Sunflower, Bomico. Bomico was the, the distributor. Uh, Sunflower was the publisher. I think that's, that's how it worked out. And, uh, but, but different enough that we didn't, you know, uh, it, they weren't the same games. It was just they had seen the same situation or the same problem with a German econom- economic simulation that they were too dry. And, and, and too much like a spreadsheet, and, and they went a slightly different direction. But uh, obviously, I mean, very successful. And uh, uh, yeah, you said Blue White did the last one. I don't know. I mean, now Blue White is, uh, I guess, it's been Ubisoft put to rest. Uh, the name is no longer used uh, in, uh, pu- in, in publishing. The settler certainly made Blue Byte, and um, it also gave us the room financially to experiment with with other titles i mean there were other titles that could have been should have been really successful should have been really should have been commercial hits like comedian dynasty or schleichfahrt which was this underwater game that 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 was another developer that we supported but they did 90 percent of the game the 3d graphics at the time, they were unseen of, not unheard of. Very good gameplay. Basically, a flight simulator underwater with a back, with a really nice background story. And uh, but for some reason, the media didn't go for it. The buyer didn't go for it. The Battler series was successful, not not as much as the Settlers, but it was continuous. It was a continuous flow of uh, revenue. And. Uh, I mean, in the end, uh, just just before the sale of the company, I mean, we were working on titles with uh, uh, we were one we were working on on Dragon's Lair 3D with uh, Don Bluth here in the United States, and um, you know, taking the old laser laser disc game uh, and 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 turn it into a 3D game for the PC. So we were definitely growing, and but it was also getting tougher and tougher and tougher, and we had missed the opportunity to take the company public. By about six weeks, and uh, uh, because and you know there was this, there was the boom, and then there was the bust, and then nobody wanted to to, to hear anything about computer game companies going public anymore. Uh, the banks had kind of, I mean, no, they had they had basically told me you need to go public. They called me. They called me in '96, '97. I don't know. The bank uh, out of Frankfurt uh, called me and said, Mr. Hutzler, have you ever thought about taking your company public? I said, no. 
And they basically talked me, us, into, you know, this is what you have to do. This is the big money, da 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 And that was probably the beginning of the end. Because everything changed after that. And uh, it cost so much money just to take the company, you know, to prepare the company to take it public. You have to change your books. You have to go back five years and redo the books after, you know, certain generally accepted accounting practice, practices gap because, you know, we were just a little company doing our books and filing a tax return at the end of the year. So it cost so much money and took so much energy out of uh, creating games that I would call it, the, that was the beginning of uh, the end when the banks came after us, when the investors came after us and wanted to uh, take us public. Was that the main reason that you left? The company changed through that? Accounting uh, changed from the local CPA, who my father had known for, for 20 years and I had known for 10 years, to uh, you know a, a guy in an office to Arthur Anderson in Dusseldorf. So uh, the same company that was uh, fined, I don't know how many billion dollars because they were crooked like hell. <laughs> But Arthur Anderson, basically, we paid him a, a, a nice large six-figure sum to, to bring our books in order. So to take it from basically the mom and pop accounting style, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. And, and, you know, we didn't cheat on it or anything, but it needs to be prepared differently for uh, prospectors, for, for potential investors. Yeah. It was just, yeah. Uh, and there was the lure of the money, of course, but also, you know, being the first one in Germany and maybe doing bigger projects, having more money available. But uh, there was one company that, that they were slightly ahead of us. They went public, a company called Phenomedia. And uh, their fame was there was a game called uh, The Moorhoon, The Little Chicken. Oh yeah, <laughs> a little, a little ad, ad. I don't know if I mean I think it's now famous outside, but I remember no, it has no. r like it was a really big deal for half a year or something. It started like that. as an advertising game where you shoot at the chicken on the screen, and that was it. And it got, it, it it caught the imagination of the media. And once you have the media, you may have the investors. And uh, well, they, they they didn't last long in the market. That's for sure. And either one or both of the, the principals went to jail for some fraudulent uh, things. So I didn't know that. That was still going on as well, you know, the, the Wild West. So in, in a way, I'm glad that we didn't go public. And, uh, but after that, there wasn't really much choice. It was either joining another large publisher, which basically means selling, Or just reducing it, you know, getting rid of all the publishing assets, marketing, and just basically have a small development team. And I didn't want to do neither. So I, well, I, we joined Ubisoft at the time and uh, uh, I left. So that was that. Funny enough, Mohun and stuff, uh, that was the thing that I always thought with Plants vs. Zombies. It was this on the same level as Mohun for me. But they found an angle for their product because now Plants vs. Zombies is still... A big thing it's a big big brand you can find it as apps since you went through all of that all the experience you had a successful company and you created a gold gold edition game basically you were part of this of this company and team and who who made games that are still relevant today and for me it would be interesting to to know what do you feel like was was the the best things that you did and what are things that you would kind of like 
uh, learn and say like, yeah, no, I wouldn't do that again. What were the two th elements that you feel like as uh, an owner and maybe also as a developer? Well, I guess the best, the best thing, two things that I did is uh, getting into the business in the first place. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, I, had a, I was 100% convinced that this was growing, this was not going to go away. And uh, I don't know that I would have been happy as an electrician or electrical engineer or whatever. Certainly wasn't going to be a pilot. Uh, so that was certainly one good thing. Maybe taking the, so make it three, <laughs> maybe taking the independent route, setting up uh, our own business with Lota. And then the third one may be getting out of it, realizing that my skill set and my desire didn't match up with what was going on. Not hanging around for too long, right? So those three things maybe. And, and the first two are maybe easy, you know, getting in and getting your hands dirty and, you know, digging into whatever you're doing there. The last thing, you know, the deciding when, when it's time to leave, that, that, that's a little harder to do. What was it that, that, that gave you the, the edge to, because there's this fallacy of, you know, investment, where the more you invest, I mean, in your case, you invested not only time, effort and money. What was the final straw that made you decide, okay, this is definitely the best choice out of leaving? I certainly had adapted from being, having no knowledge about business or international business to to you know knowing knowing i mean we, we had we were selling into korea into japan i had visited japan our japanese partners twice in those days so we were all over the place and and I certainly learned a lot uh, but it still wasn't really at a level where let's say an electronic arts or so was was operating you know, where they have de legal departments, where they have, you know, departments for everything and, and resources and uh, in the end, the investors, the money uh, to, you know, drive you out of the market. I mean, that's, you know, if, if they couldn't buy you, if they didn't buy you, they would drive you out of the market. Apart from those pressures, the financial pressure and, you know, being, being overrun, it just didn't feel like that I was able to contribute a whole lot to where Blue White was going. And, uh, you know, could I have, you know, turned myself into uh, the, um, you know, the financial guru, the, the business expert, uh, maybe, I don't know, but I didn't want to. <laughs> so, and, and yeah, it was, but that's, that's, that's a decision that everybody has to make. And some people are more successful in growing with the company than others. Some people get out very early, Wozniak jobs came back and and took apple to like you know really unheard uh, heights so he was able to adapt he was he i guess he was always kind of the strategic thinker while wozniak was doing you know the designs of the the apple computers and, and stuff but he got out early and he, he knew that this is not for me this is not for me and and jobs would have if he hadn't died of of whatever illness he had he would still be running the company. He would not get him out of Apple. He would run it until, you know, he fell over. He, 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 he would fall over. So um, that, that, that's rare. Most people, in, uh, including myself, you go a certain way, a certain distance, and then you say, okay, this is far enough. 
And that's a difficult decision, but it's also when you make it, it's a good decision to maybe do something else. Yeah. I think the most common thing I, I hear also like on, on the CEOs and owners and stuff is is often this, am I still an important part of the success of this company, you know, uh, which is combined with, do I enjoy what I'm doing? Because even if you could be part of the success of the company, maybe you are maybe doing like, for example, you're doing business, but you don't want to do 100% business. Maybe, you know, like uh, Elon Musk thing where uh, you have to do business and you are more an engineer uh part and you cannot like you know i think there's basically this two parts that you mentioned is like am i contribution to this environment that i in this case created and do i enjoy what i'm kind of transitioned into because that's was probably also for you a transitioning from hands-on programming and so on to actually being more of a business owner and business kind of leader and i think that was interesting part what are what are the opposite sides what are the things that you maybe also nowadays learned from that experience and kind of changed in the future hindsight is 2020 as they say right the best thing is that if you can use it later you know after you had the hindsight i should have hung up on the guy from 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 the bank the, the frankfurt bank i should have hung up on him and, and never talked to these people and never had them put any ideas into my head and I mean, I'm a pretty open person uh, when it comes to, you know, I, I share information with second level management and I got just got a call from XYZ Bank. What do you think? Should we do this? You know, I mean, uh, and uh, I should have just said no. And, 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 and they, they don't prepare you for this. They don't really care. They just want to take you public and they, they, they want to get their cut on day one. When, when the bell opens, you know, they get their share, they get their percentage. Uh, that's all they want. And uh, that was one big mistake. That would have given us easily the time and the funds to, to finish Settlers 4 to a point where it was not just a cut down version where it wasn't just, you know, 90% finished. I would have sold probably the company, but not in 2001, maybe a few more years, I don't know. Maybe we would have been able to, we would have been able to uh, launch uh, IL-2 Sturmovic. That's something I haven't mentioned and that's rarely brought uh, in uh, uh, together, you know, connected with Bluebyte, but IL-2 Sturmovic was a massive, massive hit for Ubisoft. It's a flight simulator if, for, for those who don't know. And the developer, Oleg Mad Maddox, it's a, uh, it was developed in Russia by an aeronautical engineer. It was unbelievably good. The graphics were just amazing for a flight simulator. Uh, it's, it's all World War II and stuff. And we would have been able to launch that. Uh, we may have been able to finish uh, Dragon Slayer 3D. We may have been, that would have given us the opportunity to build our Blue White Game Channel. We were one of the first ones to have basically what you call a portal today, like Steam. Uh, we had that going in 97 or 98. The idea was to basically create a portal page with forums, with downloads, direct, direct sales. If it wasn't downloadable, we would send you the box. And that was called the Blue White Game Channel. So there were a lot of things in motion, strategic, and mostly coming from my end, the strategic decisions, not, not necessarily the games, but... And that was cut short because, yeah, we had to spend all that money and all the time to get ready for 
to prepare ourselves for the IPO. That was certainly, that was probably the biggest mistake. Um, and then there were lots of other smaller ones. <laughs> was there like the fear of, of not being future-proof or what was the, the reasoning behind going this direction? We were told, yes, you have, to be, you have to be a public company. You have to be a stock registered if you want to survive. And I don't think, again, with hindsight, that, that wasn't true. If you had, you know, you are under completely different pressures when you, when you are publicly traded. You have quarterly results. You have to deliver to a quarterly deadline. That's impossible. In computer, in game development, you can't do that. You, 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 you can do that if you have 20, 30, 40 titles in your portfolio. Then you can do that. Then you can, and, and they're massaging the numbers, believe me. I mean, uh, game development, even today, it's basically, it's done when it's done. Uh, unless you want to have a big, big disaster on your hand where people are screaming, you know, at, at you, it's not finished, it's buggy, da, 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 da. This is not what you promised us. But game development, it takes as long as it takes. So you can't squeeze it into a quarter. And if you only have three or four titles every year, uh, that's tough. So, but they, we were told, no, this is what you have to do. And they, they don't tell you the downsides. They tell you, you know, oh, you're going to be listed at, you know, 80 euros. We were now in euro times. And uh, I'm like, oh, holy shit, that's a lot of money. <laughs> if you multiply that, you know, with, with the shares that, that everybody's going to own. And everybody was going to get a little bit. I mean, the, the second level management, everybody had a, had a would, would, would have had a piece of the pie. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was the being left behind. But knowing now, I think we would have been stronger. Blue White would have been stronger not going that route. Because everybody else who, who did went, who, who did go this, this way, small companies, and they realized they now had to do quarterly you know, reports, they found out pretty quickly that they would buy everything. I mean, Phenomedia talked to us. They, 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 they wanted to buy me out or buy me, not buy me out, but they wanted to take over Blue Byte because they, they had no titles. But on, they had to report something for the next quarter. And so, uh, you know, I, I guess that explains both sides, why, we, why I did it and why it was a bad decision in the end. That, yes, we were, we were told you won't survive if you don't do this. Again, being, you know, now, nowadays, today, uh, uh, I think we would have been, if, if, if we would have certainly made it through 2002, because the money we spent, that I spent on, on doing all this, I had to, I had to hire a, a full level CFO. They don't come cheap. Up to that point, we had an accounting person and a CPA, right? And now I had to pay a six-figure number to, to, a, to a CFO. And, uh, you know, six-figure numbers to Arthur Anderson. And, and then, of course, the big disappointment when the bank called us, well, now is not a good time. We may want to wait. That, that, that's how they put it. And everybody in the company was already, you know, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. You know, even the developer, the project management, the, the, the department heads, the project management, they were all part of the stock scheme, of course. And now I had to tell them that, oh, sorry, guys, this, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not going to happen. Uh, so that, that's a big disappointment for everybody, obviously. And uh, that's, that's certainly when things started falling apart, too. We should have just kept doing what we were doing. Uh, I think we would have survived a little bit longer. 
and we may have been better prepared for an IPO, you know, after the the bust, uh, when the market came back, because there was another wave and another wave and another wave uh, of uh, investments and IPOs in in games. So uh, yeah. That is kind of a hard decision, I think. Like, even if it's not on that back big level as you have, uh, even on, on your personal level, you can have these decisions about, you know, you're making a masterclass, do you put it on a website? Or are you making like this? Do you uh, Are you getting employed? Do you sell your product to someone instead of developing yourself? There's, there's thousands of these small decisions if you create something. And some of them feel right at the moment and they, you find out that, you know, all these uh, things that you're not prepared for are coming your way. Same thing could have ha happened with um, like the distribution rights, you know, by giving it away, uh, ending up like with no product, you know, for your, on, your, on your own, basically, and just being on the mercy of the publisher at the end of the day, which can also happen. So it is always such a hard uh, balance, I think. Um, I really, like, I always thought like something like The Settler should be in this book, Blood, Sweat and Pixels, <laughs> uh, which is a, an amazing book. I can really recommend it mm -hmm. um, to everyone is basically, it's about development process and that's one of the reasons, for example, I wanted to talk to you a little bit of of how things developed and th things were made, uh, because I really enjoyed that. Of course, there are a lot of like also the negative stories of, you know, rushed production cycles, destroyed uh, uh, basically companies like sadly Bioware, uh, Mass Effects and so on. Yeah, I think that is such a such a hard decision of over years making the right decisions and steps. But I, I still feel that how things developed and for example i i really uh found, found very smart to to grow in terms of, of publishing too i think that was also something that i noticed in the beginning of our talk that you were focusing not just becoming a software or a games company but you always wanted to keep things in-house as far as possible as realistically possible also we had direct sales in 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 all three offices so we had an inventory in our basement you know you know selling directly to customers if they didn't want to buy it or couldn't buy it in the store so we were doing that we had our own music studio downstairs in the in the basement uh, something not everybody has and it was fully decked out you know sometimes it can be an albatross around your, your neck but it also gives you certain advantages, especially if you then hire out, you know, work or services to other companies. And uh, so, so, but the, it was always the idea was always go direct, 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 get get as close as possible to the customer because the customer, most of our games they loved. So we knew we had the customer on our side. What we didn't know is where's the retailer, where's the distributor, where's the publisher. Any of these three, and you're out. You're not on the shelf end of story so and hence the you know blue white game channel i mean that was an effort to basically channel as many sales as possible to our website this was 99 2000 so bandwidth wasn't quite there yet but it was certainly it was planned certainly to have updates on online you could download the updates and uh, at, at some point in time we would have delivered the software electronically and as that you know, if we weren't leading in the field, we were we were pretty much on on par with some of the big companies that we know today. And it's, 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 it, no matter what product you have, 
whether it's a physical product or, or a virtual product like a game, uh, if, you, if you can talk to your customer directly, if you have a direct link to your customer, the customer you can trust, the customer will tell you uh, whether it's good or bad because they paid for it, for it. The retailer, the distributor, the publishers, they, they may lie to you for whatever reason. So you never really know what's going on. And I guess that's why some, you know, some businesses nowadays are so successful with, you know, direct fulfillment and all that stuff. And, and because they are directly working with a, with a customer and they get the feedback and, and can either incorporate that or whatever, learn, learn from it, incorporate that into their product. And I think still there, it holds true today. I think even if the the market completely changed, we are now have Steams and mm -hmm. YouTube's and whatever uh, online websites that you can create for yourself. So you don't have to have this publication or someone in between. But I think it's still this thing of being afraid of elements. You know, being afraid of your own taxes, being afraid of of uh, marketing, distribution, and so on. And Still, I'm pretty sure a lot of people give that away because, oh, I'm a developer, oh, I'm an artist, I'm a this and this, and they give it away. And then they, a lot of times I feel like, and I experienced myself, you noticed um, very fast how much you lose control, understanding uh, about your product, maybe even rights to some degree. I had this experience with my masterclasses. So create a masterclasses. I was distributing it through a website, which was great. I'd like, it was it helped me a lot. Um, they gave me a little bit of a. They gave me a, their experience basically because I can like they had like rules how they should be. So I learned a lot about creating masterclasses actually about them, and I stayed with them for two years, and it was a great experience. But one thing, and that's a little bit what you described too, was uh, I lost control about the customers because I got like feedback, but I, when I was asking, oh, I, someone wrote me this negative feedback, maybe. I would like to ask them something about it. And they didn't allow it. Mm. They they were literally like, no, we can ask them. But of course, there was nothing happening. I don't even think they did something about it. So what happened for me is someone was complaining about something. And for me is, first thing, do I have to, to, to change it because right. it's bad? Or is there a, a conflict of uh, expectations or whatever? So for me, I noticed like, um, yes, they took away the, the customer service, the payment things, yeah, yeah. all the things. They, they did it. And they got a, a big share of, of the product, of the sales. You know, mm -hmm. I got like a smaller share from that. But it ended up that I, I was losing track of my own uh, product. I was still in, in, in the licensing. So I, I only borrowed the license for a few years. Um, so I got it back afterwards. But I lost the control and I noticed how much I, I became less interested in my own product and also how I cannot just change it. So, for example, I wanted to change the format a little bit, but I couldn't because their format was predefined. You know, everything had to be this and that and that. And if I wanted to change, have something different in the beginning or something, I couldn't. So after the whole experience, I was like, yeah, that was a good experience. But I took it back and now I had all these elements that I learned, but also all these elements that I enjoyed. And, and I found the fun also back with the with my own product, basically. And, and that was something that, that I still believe is very important nowadays is, yes, you can find people that help you or companies that help you with whatever marketing distribution, but just be careful about staying in control of your own brand, IP or whatever. Yeah. And also just don't take the being afraid of something too high on the pedestal of 
uh, other people will solve it. Because most of the time, you're afraid of something like marketing or whatever. Just because you give it away to a marketing company doesn't mean they will solve the problem for no. you. Ergo, they will create so much sales that it like uh, will like automatically be that. A lot of times, a lot of people are not worth what you actually pay them, especially on no. that level, because they're not the experts of your product. They maybe uh, only know the five tricks that everyone knows. Basically, they don't invent the wheel from from nothing. So just be a little bit aware that just because you don't like something and you, it's a hassle for you, just because you pay someone and he's an expert, doesn't automatically mean that a they will solve your problem and b they will not take away your product to some degree, maybe from you. You may stumble over a phrase or so, and you may not know you know the platitudes that 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 you need to you know the. the the boilerplate to your press release, basically. Uh, you may not need that, but whatever you are saying about your product comes from your heart, and the customer will the customer will note will notice that. And everything else is just yeah boilerplate, and and there are some really good marketing companies, and then there are some really bad, and and you you can't afford as as the owner as a product owner, you cannot afford that. So. Yeah, be 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 cautious, you know, with with whom you you ally yourself there and and ally yourself there or align yourself with. Uh, it, it may be good, it may not be, but even if you take give it away, like marketing, you should always take some responsibility so you understand what's going on and let the expert do the expert part at the at their own base, basically. Thomas. Thank you very much for, for joining me today and yeah. also giving us the, the woozling and the <laughs> aquarium effect and all the other uh, words that we find in, in German for, for the settler. And you did see my, 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 my four colleagues here, right? I don't know if yes. uh, you can see that. Is it settler free, I think, isn't it? This is uh, Settlers figurines collectible, I think from Settlers 3, yes. Yes. So you have the Roman, you have the Egyptian, you have the samurai, the Japanese, and you have the Amazon. So uh, I I still have a couple of, of of those. I think in the next in the next in the next twenty year we'll we'll probably put well I don't know if I'm going to be that old get get that old but in in ten years I'll put the boxes on eBay and see how high I can drive the price for originally <laughs> shrink wrap original settlers figurines. So that might that 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 might end up be my business. that might end up be my retirement. Yeah, <laughs> you you heard it, guys. So yeah, uh, watch out for in ten years on I don't know eBay or wherever whatever is in the yeah whatever exists at that at time. You know, blue blue bite uh, online sales or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Thomas, thank you very much. It was thank such you. a pleasure to talk with you and have a little bit of a retro perspective on on one of my favorite games and I think a lot of people's favorite games. Appreciate it very much. Take care. That's it with this week's episode of the 21 Artist Show. Thank you so much for watching and listening. This podcast is 100% ad-free. And to keep it that way, check out my website, 21artistshow.com. There you can find exclusive access to awesome masterclasses and coaching opportunities to work successfully in visual effects, animation, and games. Just go to 21artistshow.com. And don't forget to share it with people who would benefit from that content and tell them they're awesome. See you on the next episode. Next on the 21 Artist Show. As a student at school, I wasn't a great student because I knew I wanted to get into visual effects at a really early age. And it was 
interesting to like analyze myself and my own thought patterns as a teenager where as soon as you sit me in a classroom and I have to write an essay, it's gonna be garbage. As soon as you sit me down in front of a computer at 2 a.m., sleep deprived, in front of like After Effects or whatever and a tutorial, I'm really into it. And I think there's like, partly from a lot of the schooling systems, and I know I'm generalizing saying this, but a lot of the schooling systems around the world kind of force you to just memorize stuff. And only a few teachers are really good at finding that inherent desire in people and like helping them unlock that curiosity and follow the curiosity because it's a key component on how you learn and how you be effective, I feel.